Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I'm on air or recording today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? Hello. It is Friday the 13th right now when we're recording. No, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Do you guys have any like awkward things with Friday the 13th or? Like historically today, nothing to, I mean, I haven't left my apartment today, which is what the whole year's looked (laughs) like. So yeah, I haven't done anything. I have a, um, I have a cat who is black. So I kind of treat today and Halloween are like his high holy days. He doesn't care. (laughs) High holy days. I like that. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's yeah. it's also randomly World Kindness Day, oh. um, which I seen today on one of those lovely news things that were playing on my TV in the background. Yeah. So yeah, mm-hmm. so be kind to one another, hug somebody mm-hmm. from a social distance perspective, of mm-hmm. course. Metaphorically <laughs> hug each other. Yes, we be exactly. kind to yourself. Shit. Well, yeah, don't take a bubble true. bath. Do something. <laughs> real i'm speaking to myself anyway (laughs) um this week we'll be discussing the medical expert pilot program regarding mental health calls um for our local segment also ezekiel emmanuel's position in joe biden's advisory board uh pfizer's vaccine announcement and a possible civil war on the brink in ethiopia so let's kick off today's episode with our first segment which is local news emily what do you have for us today Alrighty. So uh, this story comes from a November 10th NBC New York article titled Medical Experts, Not NYPD, Will Respond to 911 Mental Health Calls as Part of Pilot. Uh, The article explains, quote, for the first time in the city's history, Mayor de Blasio announced Tuesday that the new mental health professionals and crisis workers uh, will be dispatched through 911 instead of the NYPD to respond to mental health emergencies in two high-need communities, calling the pilot program a major innovation. It's scheduled to start this upcoming February, so February 2021. Uh, In his announcement, the mayor said, quote, one in five New Yorkers struggle with a mental health condition. Now, more than ever, we must do everything we can to reach those people before crisis strikes. For the first time in our city's history, health responders will be the default responders for a person in crisis making sure those struggling with mental illness receive the help they need. First Lady Shirley McRae said, quote, treating mental health crisis as mental health challenges and not public safety ones is the modern and more appropriate approach, and that is because most individuals with psychiatric concerns are much more likely to be victims or harm themselves than others. The article explains that there were over 170,000 mental health calls to 911 in 2019, Uh, which is an estimated one call every three minutes. It is important to note that McRae also, yeah, it's a lot. Um, It's important to note that McRae also said, quote, by acting early, we can often prevent a crisis long before it ever happens. So don't wait. If you or a loved one on uh, notices a troubling change in behavior or warning signs like extreme mood swings, changing in eating or sleeping habits or long lasting sadness, there is support available. Professional help is available any time of night or day. That's 24-7 through NYC Well and NYC Care. Guaranteed. No matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter if you are insured or not insured. No one is turned away. 
Whether your family is in a moment of crisis or you just need someone to talk to to process these feelings, you are not alone. And you can reach NYC Well by calling 1-888-NYC-WELL, which is actually 1-888-692-9355, or texting WELL, W-E-L-L, to 65173, or visiting nyc.gov slash nycwell. Uh, NYC Care can be found at nyccare.nyc or by calling 1-646-692-2273. Thrive NYC also exists as, quote, an unprecedented citywide commitment to close critical gaps, gaps in mental health care. And you can find more information at thrivenyc.cityofnewyork.us. Um, so those are some great resources there. Uh, the story, back to the developing story at hand, though. Uh, one thing the article also mentions, however, is that even though the NYPD will not be the default response agency for mental health crises as part of the pilot, they will still be part of the response for some cases. Uh, the FDNY, our fire department, will be part of the team behind this effort as well, working alongside Health and Hospitals, NYC Well, and as mentioned, the NYPD. My question is, what will those cases be? And if NYPD is still showing up, will it really be that different from the current situation? According to FDNY First Deputy Commissioner Laura Kavanaugh, quote, the safety of our members and of the public is paramount. So in those cases where police are needed to protect lives, they will also be part of our response. Um, but again, I'm wondering who's the one making the call that it's dangerous. <laughs> um, training has already started, and Kavanaugh also says that the pilot program agencies will be working with input from, quote, advocates, community-based providers, as well as our members in EMS and their union representation to, quote, develop the right protocols, develop training for these new teams, and be ready to work on the ground in February. So yeah, so while this is an exciting step in the right direction of taking some of the bloated New York Police Department funds and putting them towards more constructive community efforts, is it really even that at all is my question. And I guess time will tell because it hasn't even officially started yet. Um, but th that's my concern. Wow. <laughs> I think this one is kind of like a mixed bag, like... You know, like you said, you really won't be able to tell until it actually happens. But I hope that the resources they provide, um, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about them actually being able to show up like in a timely manner and do something effectively. Um, just because sometimes issues like this just like get out of hand so quickly. So, you know, same concerns I would have if, if the police showing up. I'm just saying the likelihood of them being able to really make an impact. I really hope it happens. Right. With the like emergency medical or like the mental health experts showing up. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I think, you know, there I feel like every other week we have a story on the show about a person of color, you know, or once a month we have a, a, a story about a person of color who was killed by the police because a loved one called 911 because they were concerned for their mental health. Right. Like it does happen where. um the police just responds to, you know, something that they don't understand or that they're worried about with violence. Um, so, you know, that's the hope is that this will counteract that. And, and part of the article also said like, um, McRae, McRae said also said that they've trained tens of thousands of New York police department officers in crisis intervention. And I, it wasn't clear whether that was part of this program or just like in general, something that's been like happening. Um, but we've also discussed on the show, like how effective are those 
trainings, really. Right. Um, like even right. when you have like de-escalation and don't use a chokehold, like those things mm-hmm. don't happen all the time. Hmm. Yeah. Because and I mean, there's a culture like we've seen this year. You know, like how many police departments around the country have had these sorts of trainings and still showed up to beat up protesters, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that it's a, it is a step in the right direction. And there's been a lot of um, hand wringing and stuff from people that are more centrist or moderate who they don't like the words like defund police because they think it's scary or whatever. But I think this is an example of how when you have messages like that and they're repeated often enough, it does make a difference and start to move it does move the needle in public discourse of like, okay, maybe we shouldn't have people responding to the, like, it's not a perfect solution and we don't know what's going to happen in February, but I think it's a good indication that there is like political will and there's people asking for these types of changes to be made. So if this can happen, then there's potential for it to go even further I do think one of the things, though, is like who is calling, because if you're if you don't recognize if you're a regular person, then you just notice something odd. You might not even recognize that it is like a mental health thing. So, like, how would you like, how do you deal with that? Like if someone just calls and reports like somebody looks suspicious you know, how would the people responding be able to suss out like, okay, this is a mental health issue. It's no one's actually in danger or we need to send like a specialist out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's a great point, Jasmine. Yeah. What yeah. if the person calling doesn't know they need to route it to a mental health expert? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like with Walter Scott, they knew like the people who called were his loved ones. Like they knew specifically what was happening and they called specifically for medical assistance, which did not come. But there's so many people that call the cops just because someone makes them uncomfortable or they think someone is weird or, you know, and the person might need an intervention that's medical. But who makes that call, you know? Yeah, I definitely think the training is going to have to be very thorough, right, because we have so many different people in um, New York City that suffer from different issues. And it's not like you can put a one size fits all like, oh, you get a mental health call, then you do A, B, C and D. And if that doesn't work, you do D, E, F. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's not a one size fits all thing. And I think that when they are doing this training, um, it should definitely include like how to talk to either family members or others that may be there in support of that person, too, because you have to work together that, you know, people aren't necessarily going to trust you just because you're not the cops. You know, there's also a way that we can work with our families to work with people who have mental, you know, illness or disability so that we could build a better trust, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. like, that's one of the things, too, about like when you talk about defunding the police or as a step towards abolishing them, it's like to fill that void, you need to have community and people that are willing to step in instead of always outsourcing it to some other entity. Exactly. exactly. You know, and like it, I think it would be helpful. Like maybe the next step is like if regular, like regular, regular community people like are can, being can trained. be a part of it. Yeah. Because, you know, if someone needs help right now, 
you might not have time to like call as Teresa was saying and wait for someone to show up. Like you might have to step in and do something, you know, as a part of the community because there, there are a lot of, it might not be a cop, but like Teresa said, just because you're not a cop doesn't mean you don't have a carceral punitive like way of dealing with people. Like there's people who work in social work and mental health that are also kind of like, we're going to lock this person up or we need to restrain exactly. them. Exactly. You know, and that can be traumatic as well. So yeah, I, yeah. Do, but I still think it's a step in the right direction, but there's still Absolutely. a lot more that we got to think about. Yeah, I agree. If only to like show that it it that people want this and that it's possible to start right. even in baby steps. Um, again, like you know, it, it's interesting. The announcement sort of it it like makes it sound more radical than it is because again, the NYPD is still involved and will still be used sometimes, right? But um, yeah, you know, I baby steps are better than no steps, absolutely, and. You know, it, it maybe maybe the, if this program is a huge success, will convince other people, you know, throughout the city and nationwide that there's true benefits to this. People yeah. who don't believe it yet. This is one so. of those times when we really could benefit from people in civil society stepping up um, with their natural talents and, and things of that nature, because they are in these communities. You know, there are people there with all different types of uh, skill sets, professions. There may be. Um, existing, you know, doctor's offices or organizations that's already doing that work. You know, they could definitely be a big part of the response team there and just kind of really help to build out more of a network instead of just someone you call. But, you know, more of a response plan, I think, would be more realistic um, considering the different gamut of mental health issues in this city and, and everywhere. Yeah, that's so true, because a lot of these things like I can't tell you how many stories you see where it's like people in the neighborhood know the person. Right. That's what I'm saying. That will call some outsider is like, say, like a gentrifier. They don't know the individual and they just panic. And now they're calling someone else when there's already like there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Like there's already people that are there that are available that are able to assist but Mm -hmm. that should be tapped into instead of being ignored. So I hope they are able to like fold that in. Like, I think it is necessary to have like this type of service. And I think that is great, but it shouldn't be like, it can't be us and them for the police. You know, it's like, you have to work in tandem, you know, with the actual community and you have to know who lives around, like get to know the people around you, like have some awareness instead of being in like a little bubble, you know, where you don't know what's going on with people. Yeah. I just think that if, you know, we, I don't think we'll ever be able to abolish policing, you know, we'll have to come to some sort of understanding what that looks like, but Uh, For me, a major component of anybody helping, you know, in distress or any sort of situation along these lines has to come from within. There's so much us in them, you know, us in them, the cops, the authorities, the this and that. We have to really start fostering some sort of level of connection amongst people who live amongst each other and work within communities. It just it just really makes for an overall better rollout of stuff like this. But Mm -hmm. I'm happy it's happening for sure. Yeah. And and also. Uh, this is also a good or start in reinvesting funds into mental health care on like a public federal state governmental level. Yeah. Cause you know, that was a huge, 
my my dad loves talk or you know it's a big thing the 80s like reagan just totally like decimated you know mental health services and a huge part of our homeless crisis in this country is is rooted in that um so that makes mm -hmm. a good that makes an excellent point like mental chuck schumer got on he said some weird thing about oh like we're doing this bill to like for suicide hotline or something and after he told this long story about a man i believe in rochester who unfortunately died by suicide he had lost his job couldn't find another one and he became depressed and so on. It's like making sure people's needs are met is mental health care. Making yes. sure yeah, people exactly. have a place to live and they don't have to be mm -hmm. stressed out. That's part of mental health care. Making sure people like, let's say they do use substances, making sure that they have services and they're able to, you know, at least be as safe as they can. That's mental health care. Like there's so many things that are preventative where all this money the cops have, you could take a lot of that and house a lot of people that are having crises now because they don't have a roof over their head instead of letting it become a big problem. And then they're so far along in the crisis that it's hard for them to get back on their feet. So let's start preventing some of this too. Absolutely. That was a great story. Thank you so much for that, Emily. Uh, definitely looking forward to the, the positive things that will come out of this program. Um, so we're going to take our first musical break. The first track today is a good throwback for one of my favorites, Lenny Kravitz. This is Thinking of You. We'll be right back.
welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Jasmine with our national news segment. Take it away. All right. So this article is from Newsweek. The author is Brendan Cole, and the title is Joe Biden, COVID advisor under fire for I hope to die at 75 article. So, you know, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that we have a, we will soon have a new president, you know, hoping that nothing goes wrong between now and January. So President-elect Joe Biden has appointed a doctor to advise on COVID-19, but that doctor is facing criticism for an article he wrote six years ago in which he argued that he had no aspiration to live beyond the age of 75. So the doctor's name is Ezekiel Emanuel, and he's the brother of Rahm Emanuel, who is the former mayor of Chicago. Um, Rahm is known for one thing, for being uh, the mayor of Chicago when Laquan McDonald was murdered by police and they refused to release the video footage. Anyway, back to his brother, Ezekiel. Ezekiel is an oncologist and he's one of 10 of the advisory board members that Biden appointed to the task force earlier this week. In the Atlantic article, Ezekiel says that he thinks by age 75, quote, creativity, originality, and productivity are pretty much gone for the vast, vast majority of us. He continues, living too long is also a loss. It renders many of us, if not disabled, then faltering and declining, a state that may not be worse than death, but is nonetheless deprived. And this is this came out in October 2014 in The Atlantic. He claimed that Americans were obsessed with health remedies as an effort to cheat death and prolong life as long as possible. And he goes on to say, I reject this aspiration. I think this manic desperation to endlessly extend life is misguided and potentially destructive. Um, he's 63 years old himself. So I guess he's, what, in 12 years, he's just like, whatever. Um, he said that he would reject at the age of 75 medical treatments like flu shots and that if there were to be a flu pandemic, a younger person who has yet to live a complete life ought to get the vaccine or any antiviral drugs. So one thing about this article that struck me is they go on, um, Brendan Cole goes on to include um, a lot of people who are like right-wingers, more conservative, that were using this as like a gotcha moment. They were like, we Republican Senator for Arkansas, Tom Cotton, for example, quoted, he tweeted, Americans want our country opened up, not creepy bioethicists who enjoy playing God. The conservative attorney and political analyst Gail Trotter tweeted, oops, I guess if flu shots are out for those 75 or older, Biden's coronavirus advisor must really oppose vaccines and even antibiotics for those same age folk and so on and so on. Um, meanwhile, on the other side, healthcare advocate Kendall Brown tweeted that Emmanuel's piece makes me feel uh, not exactly confident that he wouldn't argue against the value of disabled lives. So 
This was, you know, to me, like very disturbing. Um, they contacted Emmanuel for comment, but I don't believe that he said anything. Oh, wait. Emmanuel is vice provost of global initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Newsweek contacted him for comment through the university. And he said that this week it would be 12. He said this week that it would be 12 months before the disease is brought under control and that stronger safety measures will be needed. Blah, blah, blah. So the reason I pulled this out is I know like there was a lot of dancing in the street and a lot of people very excited about the fact that Biden won the election. I think he's up to 306 electoral college votes right now and higher in the popular vote. However, I think this is a good example of understanding that this isn't the end of anything. Like you have to continue to be vigilant and pay attention to what's going on at different levels of government and also who is going to be like in make making these decisions because yeah like that someone making these types of statements and publishing them is very scary to me it to me sounds like eugenics um as you can see there's a lot of republicans that because he's in biden's um advisory council group or whatever they have so much to say about it now, but when it's people that are conservative saying essentially the exact same thing, they don't have anything to say about it. You know, there's Chris Christie was talking about some people just have to die and open up the economy. And we see that that's been pretty much the way most people running the country have approached it. Like it's acceptable if you're older or you're more vulnerable for you to just you know, pass away. And for someone in who's being considered for this type of a role to have openly said that I think is really troubling. So yeah, that's my national story. Wow. Or rather Brendan Cole's national story. Well, that's, that's a lot. I mean, you're right about having to stay vigilant. Um, This is just the beginning, you know, but definitely kind of understanding who's in these camps now, I think will uh, be coming to the surface because like we were talking about, Emily, they kind of, the Biden campaign kind of played down a lot of things um, on the campaign that probably would have been brought up, you know, even simple thing, not simple, but, you know, even the fact that Kamala would be the first woman, uh, other things like this, we don't know who were inside of the campaign as much. And I also felt like the campaign somehow were pushed like right to the very end this year. So it wasn't really a lot of exploring to do of the different people that are around, but we're starting to see that now, right. As um, he's building his team and things of that nature. So, but yeah, definitely not trying to account older people out of anything at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I skimmed the article. Um, It's just such a bizarre it seems it feels like you know like a exploratory think piece by like you know a junior in high school right not like a medical professional working on like the public theater like it's very strange to take such like a flippant tone about something that's very serious and of course I'm, I'm sure he regrets it publishing it now he was probably really excited to get a byline at the Atlantic at the time <laughs> um but it's it's bizarre and you're right it, it's you know yeah i hope he doesn't mean it but we can't assume that cuz he literally published it um 
Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to assume that everything ends at 75. My grandpa's 91 and he plays tennis like three days a week. Like he's doing great. Yeah. He's, he's thoroughly enjoying life. He went to Israel like last year. (laughs) He's like, yeah, like he's fine. And I know he's, he's an anomaly, but it's like to just, that's why you don't make blanket statements about anything, like about any group of people. Right. Um, One of the things, too, is that even though the focus and what he wrote was on the age of 75, he made a lot of other very shitty comments about productivity and like physical ability, which that can apply to someone at any age, you know, like at any point in your life from you might be someone who from birth, maybe you're not able to do certain things. That doesn't mean your life is any less, you know? So the, this whole like equating the value of a person with what they can quote unquote contribute and produce is very fucked up. Yeah. It's very capitalist. Capitalistic. Yeah. It's disgusting. And I really, I think people don't understand like how deadly, like literally that type of thinking is like, we see it with the way this, disease has not been managed. You have people saying all types of shit, like why should the healthy have to suffer? It's just going to kill X, Y, Z type people. Like it's really, really, you know, it's very ugly, but unfortunately like this way of thinking is super prevalent and you have to be very vigilant against it, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. We have to be mindful too. Um, you know, just, normalizing these sort of statements and not speaking out against it is, is not right either. So definitely glad you brought this to the forefront. Yeah, definitely. And you're, I think you are right too about um, just staying vigilant, right? You know, I'm thrilled Biden won the election, like beyond thrilled. And I think, I think that as much as where, you know, I disagree, or like, I wish that he was more progressive about certain issues. I also think that he has the ability to actually get things done by meeting enough people in the middle in Congress. Right. Like I think he'll hit fewer roadblocks because of that, but there are things that we have to keep fighting for. Like, absolutely. Like Biden still supports fracking, I think, which is actually, you know, it's one of those things that there's some things that aren't negotiable because fracking is really bad for everyone involved as we've talked about on the show. Um, so yeah, yeah, so you know, celebrate because he's definitely better than what we currently have. But also, yeah, like pay attention, don't tune out. Yeah, um, that's that's really the danger is the tuning out part. Like I remember all like there's been a lot of people um who criticize the oh, if Hillary won, we would be at brunch. And that it's so true because for a lot of people, their engagement or their attention span for these things stops as long as the people in charge are not super explicitly horrible and you cannot afford to do that. You know, it's really, it's too dangerous. So please stay in your house. If you don't have to go out, like this disease is a monster. Do not fall into this thinking of I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm this, I'm that. Like you have to make a sacrifice for the people around you who might not be impervious to the virus, you know, cause we, we can't depend unfortunately on the government to be making those decisions. Like we have to make the decisions ourselves. Absolutely. Definitely a good point. 
All right. Well, that was a great segment. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for that national news story. We're going to go ahead and take our next music break before jumping into international and good news. Um, this track is called How Deep Is Your Love? And it is PJ Morton featuring Yeba. We'll be right back. Here we go. Two, three. Yeah, yeah. I know your eyes in the morning sun. I feel you touch me in the pouring rain. And the moment that you wander from me, I want to feel in my arms again. And you come to me. On a summer breeze, keep me warm in your love, then you soft let me, and it's me, it's your, how deep is your love, it's your love. Savior, when I fall, and you may not think that I care for you, when you know deep down inside, I really do, you need to show Welcome back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have a special announcement from Emily. Do we do for me? Yes. Um, so this is on behalf of the station. Um, so if you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now are, is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and those unique and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods, including including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, Check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. Back to you, Teresa. Awesome. Thank you. So I am going to jump right into our 
uh, international news story. Um, information for this story was drawn from an article on NPR and Al Jazeera. So for more than a week, Ethiopian government forces have been fighting against a powerful regional government in the country's northern region of Tigray, and hundreds have been reported dead. Uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed ordered the government offensive, accusing uh, the rival Tigray People's Liberation Front of launching an attack against military Ethiopia's military last week. So how did the conflict start? Well, it has deep roots. Essentially, it's been a power struggle that went back to 2018 when there was a popular uprising that brought Abiy into power. The, the Ethiopian's People Revolutionary Democratic Front, um, and they're known as the EPRDF, uh, appointed Abiy. Um, and they were originally a coalition of ethnically based political parties. The Tigray's People Liberation Front dominated this coalition and amassed a lot of power as the ethnic minority. Tigrans only make up about 60% of Ethiopia's population. So long running tensions between the government um, and the prime minister and the Tigray people's leaders hit a new low in September when the Tigray people pressed ahead of its, with its own elections insisting that Abiy was an illegitimate leader after national polls were postponed due to coronavirus. Abiy ordered military operations in Tigray on November 4th, um, saying that he was prompted by the TPLF's attack on their own military camps. So internet and phone lines have been shut down in the conflict zone. So it's been really hard for uh, people to gather information, true information about what's happening over there. On Thursday, Amnesty International said like hundreds of people, civilians apparently were killed in the town on the western edge of the conflict. Amnesty said it hasn't been able to confirm who was responsible for the killings, but many witnesses have told um, the media that TPLF and their affiliated militias are responsible for the attack. So of course they denied it on this television station. After the fighting broke out, the region's president called for dialogue in a letter to the African Union, he accused the government of a power grab and accused Abiy of imprisoning his opponents by trying to turn Ethiopia's ethnic federalism into a system where the prime minister holds all the power. The African Union has called for immediate ceasefire, but Abiy made it really clear that he will not negotiate with the TPLF leaders um, until they are in custody and that their weapons have been held by the regional government. Um, so. It's been really hard with the conflict, uh, one, because there's not a lot of communication on the ground there, um, and it's even affecting the government's communication within itself. Worst case scenario, the conflict could be pulled into the neighboring countries, uh, including Sudan, which is already working on a transition itself, and Somalia, which is, has been fighting um, a lot of is Islamist insurgency. The United Nations Refugee Agency says more than 7,000 Ethiopians have fled the fighting and crossed over to Sudan as of now. Uh, so this is really troubling. Uh, it's interesting that the leader, their prime minister, actually won the Nobel Peace Prize for uh, uniting the country with Eritrea upon his election. Are you guys familiar with this story? I think I, I actually may have covered that on the show. It, it sounds familiar. Um, I, that story about Eritrea. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So it's really difficult. I mean, I was trying, and a lot of the um, stories that I was looking up and some of the video, you know, it's really hard to to tell between the militia and the Ethiopian government as well, because, you know, there's like bombings going on and um, just different sort of massacres. It seems like it's happening over there, but it's really hard to tell 
you know, who's who. And so many people have died so far that the UN is claiming that it's um, a humanitarian crisis going on in the country. So I think with these stories, sometimes it's, it's really hard to gather because there is a ethnic difference between the people, right? In the United States, everything is so based on race. Uh, a lot of times we don't necessarily think about things in this term, but I think that stands out a lot to me. What do you girls think? Yeah, like it's, there's so many, and it, it's a challenge even like when you're reading about these things, like what news sources are you getting them from? Like what language are they written in? Who's doing the reporting? Like there's so many levels of, like you're so many layers removed from what's actually happening on the ground. It's can be difficult to have a really firm grip on what exactly is happening to even have an opinion, you know? Yeah, absolutely. What do you guys think about the fact that the Northern region held their elections anyway, um, after the federal f mandate was postponed because of coronavirus? I thought that was a pretty bold move. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, there was talk in the U.S. about whether the election could move forward with coronavirus. So um, it's been a bold year. It's been a year of bold moves, um, some for better, some for worse. Um, but I think it's good. I think elections are generally good and hopefully people are able to stay safe. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, were yeah. they just doing in-person voting, to your knowledge, or were there other ways potentially yeah. vote. To my knowledge, it was mostly in-person voting um, that was happening in the region. Remember, it only happened in Tigray. The rest of the country postponed the elections. And I feel like it may be because they didn't have, you know, the proper technology or security even to bring people out safely during the virus. It's hard to imagine that a certain region of the U.S. would do something like that, right? Like, Well, it's it's not that hard to imagine to me because like there are such vast, diff vastly different attitudes towards the virus right now. It's like people are living in different realities. So I could, I do think that there was like a similar breakdown between people that were like, no, we're gonna go and like we're gonna wait in line, and the people who were like, I'm gonna do what I can from home or on a different date. So, yeah, like I, I definitely think like we're fractured enough where there would be people willing to go right ahead, like everything's fine. And then other people are like, no, this isn't safe right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just think it's such it's so disheartening um, during something like this where we have so many refugees right now being displaced by additional things besides the virus. Right. Besides poverty, besides all these other issues that have people displaced now. Um, it's a war-torn country and, and, you know, I can just imagine them arriving in a new situation with not a lot of resources or, you know, not much help to get themselves stable. So definitely, um, you know, just considering those, those outliers as well that's happening to the people in this region. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm also seeing an article right now that says that Ethiopia is actually the second most populous nation. Yeah. On Africa, in Africa, mm -hmm. so um, it and that's like on foreignaffairs.com. So it's, you know, that 
just uh what's the world like um instability there yeah. is really is a huge it's a big deal yeah destabilizing yeah. the region could definitely have effect mm-hmm. on the neighboring countries as well um, yeah so yeah yeah it's pretty rough um I wish I had something more to say about this. Definitely something to to watch. I really hope that they're able to come to some level of communication, at least, to uh, stop the bombing and and um, you know have more diplomacy so that we don't lose more lives to this conflict. Yes, I agree. All right, so yeah. Emily, I think it's time for some good news. Sure thing. We need it after <laughs> that. <laughs> Always happy to provide. Um, So it's about a topic that we have not stopped talking about since, I don't know, January, February. Um, uh, (laughs) Always and forever. Um, It always is. But it's a good news story this time. So um, the story comes from a variety of different sources, but primarily the November 9th. uh, And it's been updated on the 12th. uh, New York Times article by Katie Thomas, David Gellis, Gels, and Carl Zimmer titled uh, Pfizer's early data shows the vaccine is more than 90% effective. Um, the article explains, quote, the drug maker Pfizer announced on Monday that an early analysis of its coronavirus vaccine trial suggested the vaccine was robustly effective in preventing COVID-19 and that the information is, quote, based on the first formal review of the data by an outside panel of experts. Uh, The company said that the analysis found that the vaccine was more than 90% effective in preventing disease among trial volunteers who had no evidence of prior coronavirus infection and, quote, no serious safety concerns have been observed. And that's pretty cool, too. Um, So it's a two dose vaccine developed with the German drug maker BioNTech and Pfizer, quote, plans to ask the Food and Drug Administration for emergency authorization of the two-dose vaccine later this month after it has collected the recommended two months of safety data. By the end of the year, it will have manufactured enough doses to immunize 15 million to 20 million people, company executives have said. Uh, The article makes an excellent point that, quote, independent scientists have cautioned against hyping early results before long-term safety and efficacy data has been collected, But, you know, it sure feels like a much needed reason to stay hopeful as we face some devastating COVID numbers in this country right now. Um, This is the good news section, so I won't get into it, but it's basically every day we're breaking the wrong kind of records uh, in terms of COVID. Um, But anyway, this vaccine, if it holds up to further study, has come, quote, at record breaking speed and with that mind blowing percentage of 90 percent. Uh, effectiveness. Uh, Yale immunologist Akiko Iwasaki said, quote, this is a really this really is really a spectacular number. I wasn't expecting it to be this high. I was preparing myself for something like 55 percent. So just keep that in mind. That's like the range that we were working with. um, And it's 90 percent based on limited data. Um, And I, the daily podcast had an expert on and they were explaining, you know, that number is likely going to change as we get more data, but it's certainly a good starting point. Um, So the daily podcast, again, um, episode on this explained that all these results are good for actually all of the companies working on the vaccine. So it's not like Pfizer wins and everyone else loses. Um, And that's also good for all of us too. Uh, It implies that other vaccines can also be highly effective And the more companies producing effective vaccines, the more vaccines can get to the public. 
So on November 10th, Fauci was on with Jake Tapper on CNN. And he said that uh, news of the vaccine should not be used as an excuse to not still take practical safety measures seriously, like mask wearing and social distancing. But he said, quote, help is coming and it's coming soon. And hopefully this will keep people motivated to stay vigilant and to not give up and give in to the COVID-19 fatigue, which is real. And to, quote, hang in there a bit longer. Uh, He gave more specifics on what he sees as the likely timeline for dispensing the vaccine based on what he knows. Um, So he thinks that it'll be able to start going out in December and then over again over the next few months with healthcare workers being the first priority and then high risk groups with comorbidities and then elderly people and then people who are important for societal, societal infrastructure followed by people who work in congregate settings and then teachers and children. And then after all those people get priority, then the rest of us who are just normal people will be able to get it by the end of April by his guesstimating, um, which is or definitely within the first quarter of next year. Um, but again, he he's emphasizing that the game changer would be the vaccine plus continuing to use public health measures. Um, you know, and again, there will be logistical challenges in distribution, including the fact that the vaccine needs to be stored at like ultra freezing, like extra cold um, temperatures to be, to stay effective. Um, And the fact that there's a second dose, which is hard to um, like keep track of for adults. Um, But those were anticipated challenges. So it's not, it's not like a surprise he said. And um he was also saying that, you know, some people were probably worried of being vaccinated, but hearing about a 90% like uh, effectiveness might encourage people to get vaccinated, even if they were hesitant before. And especially since it sounds like there weren't any um, serious side effects, at least in the small early groups, or I guess this was a large scale, but um, we'll see. So I want to note that Jasmine, thank you again, also sent me an episode of On the Media titled The Pfizer Vaccine Isn't a Home Run Yet where science writer Lori Garrett, a Pulitzer Prize winner, was interviewed about her article, The Vaccine News is Good, Here's the Bad News, uh, which was published in Foreign Policy on November 10th. Um, so there's a lot of reasons. I, I encourage you to check it out. There's a lot of reasons that we can't assume that we'll all just be back to normal in April because of this vaccine, including a lot of logistical problems and including of the small amount of data that this actually is looking at to start. Um But again, you know, this news combined with a Biden appointing a new coronavirus task force, um, as well as his selection of Ron Klain of chief of staff, uh, who is a man who, quote, was appointed by then President Obama to lead the response to the Ebola crisis in 2014. Um, That's a quote from CNN. Um, It feels like there's a lot to be hopeful for, even as we plunge deeper into the crisis. Um, Yeah. And again, you know, the Ebola crisis didn't turn into a pandemic because, you know, I think a lot of people like don't realize that there was a lot of work going on on the governmental level to keep that from happening Um, because that was a huge, scary outbreak. So it's awesome that Biden's, you know, bringing in so many people that know what they're dealing with. And again, we also talked about how there's a person on that um, task force who we're not, you know, might have some weird or eugenic-esque, whatever beliefs i don't know but as far as i know the rest of the team seems highly qualified and then this guy's chief of staff seems like a great choice like and emphasizes the priority that the coronavirus is taking in the administration so that's good um you know so that's all good news um 
And again, more Republicans are getting vocal about Trump needing to face reality about the election results. So that's very cool. So there's some good things happening out there. Um, you know, we can't, uh, I, I, you know, we still got to do the the work and we still got to wear the masks and stuff, but this is a great, you know, <laughs> so the pictures got a little rosier this week. So yeah, that's the story. Long winded as it was. Oh, that's good. And I'm glad that we are making progress. You know, definitely. We've been dealing with this for a while now. So it's good to know that we're closer to finding something to help because it seems like it's getting worse um, right now. So thank you for sharing that good news. But be careful, people out there. Yes, be and careful. also, this is uh, one of the problems with this is that we live in the U.S. and already there's a lot of rich nations that have hogged up like what the future supply of this vaccine will be. So the timeline that Fauci gave, which is pretty optimistic for the end of April for the people living in the United States, there's people in other countries that might have to end up waiting years for this to be available where they are. So people that feel like it's appropriate to hop on a plane and go travel to all, like, I want to go to this island in this country because I want to do what I want. You need to be aware of that. Like you could be bringing something to them, like to a place that does not have the, we don't have it here. They don't have the ability to really fight an outbreak. And they also are going to be one of the last places to get the vaccine when it's available. So we still have to be community minded internationally, as well as like within our own smaller communities. Cause you know, these things unfortunately yes. do not affect everyone evenly or on the same timeline. I 100% agree. I will say that there is some good news on that front as well. Um, so Bill and Melinda Gates, who, who a large part of their foundation goes towards international vaccines. Um, this is an article from yesterday, actually. They donated another $70 million to COVID vaccine development. Um, $50 million going towards a an alliance aiming to provide vaccines to 92 low and middle income countries. So there are people with a lot of money working on this and hopefully they will be as you know, effective as the people in this country are being. Um, but again, again, Jasmine, that's a great point yeah, to make. <laughs> I'm no fan of Bill Gates, by the yes, way. So, yeah. 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 And I, 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 you know, I don't think billionaires should exist. And the fact, you know, he's giving, this sounds like a lot of money, but it's nothing to him. I, I, I agree that there's definitely problematic stuff, but there are people there, are, there will be money pumped into that as well. So hopefully the disparity won't be as, um, stark as it could be. Um, but I agree. We got to look out for each other, you know, not just other Americans, people everywhere. Stay in your house. Yeah. yeah. Stay, right. your country. Yeah. stay healthy and stay, you know, stay cognizant of the people around you as well. All right. Well, thank you for that. And I guess that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you all so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track today is another dope throwback. I guess I'm just in the mood. Uh, this is the Stylistics with People Make the World Go Round. Have a good Sunday. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.
fancy 